Well, I've titled this, uh, this lecture, Creation and the Image of God. Creation and the Image of God. And my goal, of, the goal of this lecture, is to comment upon paragraph two. So making our way out of paragraph one, now paragraph two of chapter four of our confession. Paragraph two reads like this. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. I want to consider this paragraph somewhat narrowly. I want to consider this paragraph by considering the image of God in man, considering the image of God in man exegetically, that is from the perspective of Genesis 1, again, and historically, and again, principally, as it was articulated by Augustine, and then briefly by our own tradition. So most of our time uh, here will be spent um, with Augustine. So Augustine. Augustine developed an understanding of the image of God over many years. And you can see this development through his writings. We find his mature thought in his treatise De Trinitate on the Trinity, wherein he increasingly began to reflect upon the soul. He began to reflect upon the soul of, of man and the imminent, that is, the, the internal acts, the imminent activity of man, man's psychology, so to speak, in his intellect, in his knowing, and in his loving, and reflecting on these in Trinitarian terms. As you read uh, the De Trinitate, you begin to realize that he is, if, if you make it out of, uh, what is it? Is it the first five books? Because the, back then the, the chapters were called books, but first five chapters, uh, if you make it out of that, the rest of it, maybe it's six chapters, but the rest of it is, very, is, is the speculative aspect of, of his work. And as you begin to read that, you begin to realize that he is, well, he is theologizing out loud. He's theologizing on paper. He's working through various possibilities and metaphors, analogies. And then he proceeds as one who, who is uh, um, humbly seeking after the truth itself. He proceeds to critique his own ideas in order to show how they ultimately all fall short somewhere. Until finally he arrives at three uh, promising analogies uh, that he is even willing to call created images of the Trinity. And from these reflections, the entire Christian tradition has profited one way or another, but, um, but very much so. Let's begin, as Augustine did, with the text of Scripture. So Genesis 1, verse 26. Again, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Augustine began by asking basic questions of the text. What is an image? What does the word image signify? What does it mean? He starts with the obvious. An image is the image of something. And it can either be, the image can either be equal to that something or inferior to that something. And so identical twins, for example, are, would be an example of an image that is equal to the thing that it represents, that it, that it resembles. 
And he, he, he makes these comments even early on, these observations, in order to, to demonstrate that, that though Jesus Christ is called the image of the express image of the Father, that that does not any, in any way denote inferiority, but rather equality. But ordinarily, an image such as the image of God in man an image is inferior to and is dependent upon the thing that it resembles. So he says this, A resemblance is said to exist in inferior things when we say that something which is inferior is similar to a superior thing. For who would look in a mirror and rightly say that he resembles that thing instead of saying that it resembles him? You see what he's doing here? He's saying that, that um, in, the sort of, in the ordinary sense of image where, where the image is inferior to the thing that it resembles, an image, an image more commonly than denotes a relation of dependence, dependence upon the thing that it, in whose image it is. Augustine makes another interesting observation that all such images desire or strive to be that in whose likeness they are made. Let me say that again. That all such images desire or have an intrinsic desire or strive to be that in whose, whose likeness they are made. In other words, to be assimilated to their exemplar according to whom they exist and are measured. And so he asks this, he, he, he says this, he says, do not all pictures and representations and all things of that sort made by artisans strive to be that in whose likeness they are made? In other words, inasmuch as everything desires its own perfection, desires to fulfill its nature, it is the nature and it is the nature of an image to, to reflect its source, That's the nature of an image, right, to reflect its source. So every image, he says, intrinsically desires as an image to be a perfect representation or likeness of the things whose image it is, which Augustine refers to this phenomena, this this intrinsic desire. He refers to this as, as the things return, the created things return to its exemplar by being fully assimilated, fully conformed to, to its exemplar, so as to have its full imaging potential realized relative to what it is. You can think here of, um, of Augustine's famous line, again, in his Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless. There's that desire, restless, until it rests in thee. So an image is, he says, an image is dependent upon its source and it intrinsically desires to return and to be conformed to and to find its perfection in its divine exemplar. How does the image bearer make its return? As Augustine speaks in those terms, the the creature's return to God. How does the image bearer make its return? We're thinking of the image of God here in man. Well, as we'll see, it is through knowledge and love. It is through intellect and will. It is through knowing and loving God, even as God knows and loves himself. So with this basic understanding of what an image is, Augustine then asks if there is any difference between an image and a likeness. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness? The answer that he gives is no in one regard and yes in another. It seems that Irenaeus may have been the the first to distinguish between these two, the, the image and the likeness, according to natural endowments, the image, and supernatural gifts, the likeness. But Augustine doesn't quite agree with this. 
Augustine argues that the distinction between these two terms cannot be so neatly, so dogmatically asserted. And in fact, scripture, he notes, scripture itself frequently uses them interchangeably. So with respect to the Genesis text, he writes this. He says, it is, it is a customary thing to seek for the relation between image and likeness. The only relation that I can see is that he, Moses, wished to signify the very same reality by these two words. And we know that the Reformed will continue to press this exegetical point, particularly with regard to how Rome made use of it um, in, in, the, in the high, excuse me, the, the late Middle Ages around the time of the Reformation. However, Augustine says this, that these two words, he says, image and, and likeness, in their ordinary use, are not perfect synonyms. They have slightly varying semantic ranges, and this too, I think, is, will be helpful to us as we consider the development of Augustine's thought. At some level, he's just using, uh, employing common sense here and the use of language there are two things to consider here. In the first place, the word likeness. The word likeness has a broader semantic range than the word image. In other words, every image is a likeness, but not every likeness is an image. To some degree or another, right? to some degree or another, Every creature bears a distant likeness to God as his, as his vestiges, as his footprints, we could say. But only the spiritual, intellectual, free, rational creatures bear a close enough likeness to God, a nearness to God, to qualify also as his image. And so... Every creature is a vestige and likeness, but not every vestige and likeness is an image. Only men and angels have an immediate relation of origin to their exemplar. This leads to his second consideration. When we narrow, now we narrow our focus, narrow our focus to those creatures that are made in his image. So thinking here particularly of of, of human creatures, human beings, rational creatures, men and angels even, that possess a, a certain nearness to God in likeness. When we narrow our focus, we find Augustine frequently using this term likeness in a secondary way. He uses it in order to, to speak of the various degrees to which an image bearer may become more and more or more or less like God, a man who is the image of God, as, as man who is the image of God, is brought nearer to perfection in relation and conformity to God. They are made more like God. Just an just a ordinary um, uh, use of, of, of language here. So taken in this sense, Augustine writes, our approach to God is not by intervals of place, but by degrees of likeness, just as our withdrawal from him is by degrees of unlikeness. The distinction that we're noting here not only fits with our concept of, of sanctification, right, wherein we are, we are renewed more and more in the likeness of God, it also fits with a fuller biblical theology of the image, Though we retain the image in whatsoever state we are found, we are not equally like God in our state of sin and will be most like God in the state of glory. Again, every creature desires its own perfection and every image has the innate desire to participate fully in the likeness of its exemplar. It's the nature of an image. John Sullivan writing on the image of God, says this. In the realization of this tendency toward the exemplar, the likeness that is radically implicated in the nature of the image receives its full expression. 
receives its, its full expression in the very activity of knowing and loving God, just as the fullness of God's life principally consists in knowing and loving himself. Now think about how this, how this develops redemptive historically. Um, recall, recall how the Lord in Genesis 1 and verses 1 and 2 how the Lord initially created all things in an initial state of formlessness, and that he did this in order to to teach man, especially to turn to him for our perfection. We must look to the potter in order to form the clay, that we we would be most fully formed according to his likeness. And as we look back at, at the creation of our first parents, there is a, I want to be careful here, but there is a, a limited sense, but, but we could say a sense nonetheless. There is a, a, a limited sense that they were not yet fully formed. I want to stress that, that word fully, but fully formed in the fullness of his likeness. And, and in this sense, in the sense that their soul had not yet decisively and deliberately turned to God so as to be, to be um, raised, elevated, confirmed in a state of full perfection. Right? We can think here of the covenant of works. They were created in a state of probation in order to, to determine if, if they would seek if they would seek their full form and perfection, their beatific likeness, reward, and and confirmation in relation to God, to see if they would fully order all of their knowledge and all of their love to God through uncompromising obedience to his word. But we know how it turned out. The servant tempted Eve and and Adam to to be like God, is what he said. To be like God, but tempted them in a deceitful way. As a result, what God had formed, man deformed. Interestingly, in um, Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23, Jeremiah, the prophet, likens, the Lord likens man's fallen condition to a return to the primordial condition of all things as formless and void. In, in the moral sense, man has become, on account of sin, formless, returned to a state of formless and, and void. However, the image of God was not entirely lost, though its moral likeness to God was deformed and corrupted, so that, so that its own perfection was forfeited, its, its ultimate end was frustrated. But what sin has deformed, the grace of the gospel is able to reform by means of the righteous obedience of Jesus Christ in our place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us back to God. What's more, we have the promise in Christ that that in our glorification, we shall be made deiform. I'm doing the pastor thing now, right? Form, deformed, reform, deformed, which, by which I mean that the, the image should be fully formed in his likeness and fit for glory. Fit for glory as fully as, 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 a, as a creature can be. So you have here this biblical, Augustinian biblical theology of the image, the fourfold state of the image of God in man, formed, deformed, reformed or conformed, and finally and fully deformed. This, we can say, is a, is a uh, synopsis, summary, of Augustine's general doctrine of the image, general doctrine of the image of God. What is the image? What is, it, what, what is the nature of an image? In his latter years, later years, especially in his treatise on the Trinity, De Trinitate, he increasingly works out in detail the possible ways in which, in which the triune nature of God is reflected in the nature of man. Let us make man in our image. For there to be an, an adequate analogy between the nature of God and the nature of man, there, may, there must be some sort 
of trinity and unity, some sort of unity and trinity reflected in man's natural constitution. Man, even the whole man, um, we're not going to answer questions here in relation to the body and and so forth, but, but we'll say this, that man, even the whole man, is the image. It is not what man has so much as what he is or what she is. But be that as it may, Augustine maintains, and I, I see this in, in our tradition as, um, um, in, in the older reformers anyways, I see this as well. That Augustine maintained that the image is principally seated in what he refers to in the Latin as the mens, M-E-N-S. This is a, a difficult word to translate, particularly in how he uses it, though it is most often translated as mind. It's principally seated in the soul. Augustine writes, If we then are renewed in the spirit of our mind, Ephesians 4, and he is the new man who is renewed to the knowledge of God, according to the image of him who created him, Colossians 3, there is no doubt that man was made to the image of God that created him, not according to the body. He has things to say about the body, but principally, not according to the body, nor according to any part of the soul, but according to the rational mind wherein the knowledge of God can exist. His point is that the image of God is principally is principally that in man which distinguishes us above every other creature or created likeness. In this way, for, for Augustine, men's or, or mind, men's refers to, to the, the mind in the sense, it, it does not refer to the mind in the sense of the intellect, per se, in distinction from the will, but to the, to the whole rational soul as an intellectual substance, by virtue of which man is given dominion over the irrational creatures of the earth. And he says, It is by this image of God within itself, that is, within the soul, that such power Let me start over. It is by this image of God within itself that the soul has such power as to be able to cleave to him whose image it is, to to cleave to him through through knowledge and love. So Augustine, Augustine turns his attention to the rational soul to consider the possible ways in which the triunity of God is reflected in man. In the latter half of his treatise on the Trinity, it is as if, again, it is as if he is theologizing aloud. He's proposing and then he, he is critiquing each analogy that he brings forth until he comes upon two or three proposals that especially he feels especially holds out promise. And it's really these two or three that have had the greatest um, uh, influence upon the Christian tradition, um, if not immediately with respect to the image of God, um, most certainly and definitely with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity itself. So, first, I want to go through these. <clears throat> This is probably the, the worst time of day to do this. but um, And it's a, it's a difficult read to read through this section in, um, in Augustine, but I'm going to try to just take these three and summarize them and, 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 and help, them, help us to, to make these, these uh, more intelligible to us. So the first. The first of these analogies, metaphors or analogies that in, in which he finds the, the image of the Trinity... It consists of the relation between the mind, its knowledge of self, and its love of self. All looking at the, the intrinsic, the, the um, is that the word I'm looking for? The, the imminent activity of the soul. So the mind, its knowledge of self, its self-knowledge, and its self-love. 
It is, it is, it is self-knowledge and love that is the focus. Self-knowledge and love. Not just knowledge in general or love in general. He's, he's looking at self-knowledge and love principally because he is, again, considering the ad intra operations of the soul as a reflection of the ad, ad intra processions of the persons within the Trinity. Augustine is led to this analogy by means of an extended meditation upon the nature of love. Love consists of the subject who loves, the object that is loved, and the act of love itself. And wherein the object of love is oneself, so the object of love is oneself, loving oneself perfectly and proportionately, then the subject who loves and the object that is loved are one and the same, essentially one, consubstantial. And Augustine adds to this observation that the mind that loves itself cannot love itself if it does not first also know itself. And so the mind knows itself, and in knowing itself, it loves itself. This is how he comes on to this, comes upon this, this metaphor. So in this way, Augustine turns his meditation to the, to the necessary and, and imminent activity of the soul ad intra. A, a, a soul necessarily knows and loves itself because even if a person has lost all of his outward senses, you know, sight, um, hearing, and so forth. Even if a person has lost all of his outward senses and is totally cut off from the outside world, his soul, his own soul, is nevertheless still present to himself and to itself. That is, that it should know and love itself through itself. That it should know and love itself through Itself, rather than through the senses or through something external to itself. And this relation in the soul between the mind and its imminent activity of knowing and loving itself, it provides a relatively profound image of the divine trinity. Mind, its self-knowledge, and its self-love are all relational terms in that they signify mutual relations existing within the essential unity of the soul. One author puts it like this. In the view of Augustine, there is no mind without knowledge and love of self, in some sense. There is no knowledge of self without mind and self-love. And there is no self-love without self-knowledge and mind. In other words... These three terms, mind, knowledge, and love in, in relation to, 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 to the knowledge and love of self, signify mutual and inseparable relations existing within the substantial unity of the soul. Moreover, we can say that the mind, the mind in knowing itself through itself, is the principle of its own self-knowledge. And the mind as it is known to itself, is likewise the principle of the love whereby it loves itself. Just as the father, in knowing himself, is the principle of the son. And the father, together with the son, are the principle of the spirit, proceeding forth from the father and the son in mutual love. Just as knowledge always terminates in the generation of a mental word, proceeding from, while, while at the same time remaining in the mind. So it's imminent activity. So also, the Father's act of self-knowledge terminates in the eternal generation of the Son. And, and just as the mental word is an image of the object known, the Son is the perfect image of the Father. And as self-love follows upon self-knowledge, so also the eternal procession of the Spirit logically follows upon the eternal generation of the Son. 
Moreover, Augustine draws a, a close relation between knowledge and love. He points out that there are some things that cannot, there are some things that cannot be truly known unless such knowledge is perfected in love. You can know that two plus two is four with, without having to love that knowledge. There are some things that don't necessarily involve the will, but there are other things that do. You do not truly know Christ if in knowing him, you do not love him. And the same goes for a true knowledge of self. So Augustine writes, love is that thing which joins together our word and the mind from which it is begotten as a mean, and without any confusion binds itself together to them as a third member in an incorporeal embrace. In a a profoundly similar way, the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. So in this way, August, in this first way, Augustine sets forth the first of what he considers a promising way of locating the image of God in man. He, he summarizes his meditation in these words. There is a certain image of the Trinity in the mind itself and the knowledge of itself, which is its offspring and word, and the love as the third. And these three are one and one substance. But because this model is not, always clear, is not always clear whether the mind is a relation within the soul or just a reference to the soul itself, Augustine plots on. Augustine seeks a, a solution in a second analogy. So secondly, <clears throat> the second analogy is like the first but it consists of the relation between the memory, the intellect, and the will. He writes, We are his image in this very point, that we are capable of him and can be partaker of him, which so great a good is only made possible by our being his image. Behold, then, how the mind remembers, understands, and loves itself. If we discern this, we discern a trinity, though not yet indeed God, but now at last an image of God. That last point is that every, every created, created trinity, created analogy falls short of God himself. Um, But at last, we've come upon an image of God, he says. Augustine is not merely speaking here about the powers or the faculties. This is often how this is interpreted wrongly. He's not not here speaking about, simply, about the powers or the faculties of the soul in sort of a static fashion. He is speaking insofar as these faculties and powers give rise to imminent activity and operation within the soul. Not just the capacity to know and to love, but actually knowing and loving. The act of the intellect is to know or to reflect upon itself and conceive itself in knowing itself through itself. The act of the will is principally to love or to unite its conception of itself to itself in loving itself through itself. But what Augustine is referring to, what, what is Augustine, rather, what is Augustine referring to when he speaks in this way of the memory, of the memory of, of the soul remembering itself? Augustine reflects upon the nature of memory um, in a number of places. He does this at the end of his confessions in relation to his own experience and being drawn unto conversion, uh, drawn unto the Lord and saved. But he also speaks of it in his De Trinitate where with a more, uh, uh, and does so more theologically in relation to the image of God itself as he understands it. In his confessions, in his confessions he recounts 
his own experience, how, how, how it was as if a distant memory of his true self, a distant memory of his true self, um, gave rise to a desire within himself to truly know himself. And, and it was as if, it was as if this distant memory restlessly propelled him to seek and find himself. This is what the Confessions is, is full of. He's lost. Uh, um, it, not only does he not know the Lord, he doesn't know who he is. He's lost and he's restless and he is seeking both. Um, whether he, he, he knew it or not, he didn't know it but at the time, but he was seeking both at one and the same time. In hindsight, he said to himself, I must... I must have had some vague notion or memory of that for which I was seeking. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known to seek it, and I wouldn't have recognized it when I found it. So memory of self, much like how, we, um, much like how he will go on to speak of memory of God, it, it does not refer to an actual knowledge but it refers to the phenomenon that the soul is always and immediately present to itself. Known to itself in this way. Known to itself as knowable and as lovable through itself. And so he, he speaks this way. The, the memory of self, therefore, is, is not an actual knowledge and love of self, but is the principle of such knowledge and love. The principle that causes the soul to reflect upon itself and actually knowing itself through itself. Which in turn is the joint principle that causes the soul to love itself through the knowledge of itself. Augustine puts it this way. We have a kind of knowledge of certain things stored up in the recesses of the mind and that this, when it is thought of, as it were, steps forth in public and is placed as if openly in the sight of the mind. For then the mind finds itself finds that it both remembers and understands and loves itself, even although it was not thinking of itself when it was thinking of something else. It is rightly said by him who reminds, it is rightly said by him who reminds to him who, who is reminded, you know this, but you do not know that you know it. I will remind you, and you will find that you know what you thought you did not know. Some mental gymnastics there. In other words, actual knowledge and love of self are, you could put it this way, are inchoately present in the memory as their principle, inasmuch as the soul is always present to itself as knowable and as lovable and is actually known and actually loved by virtue of its perpetual presence to itself. As the Father is the principle without principle of the other persons, so the soul's presence to itself in the memory is the principle without principle of its own imminent activities of remembering, understanding, and loving itself. Again, Augustine writes this. Since then these three, memory, understanding, and will, are not three lives but one life, nor three minds but one mind, it follows certainly that neither are they three substances but one substance. Memory is called memory relative to something. And I should say that the same also of understanding and of will, since they are called understanding and will relative to something. But each in respect to itself is life and mind and essence. And hence, these three are one. And in that they are one life, one mind, one essence. But they are three in that wherein they are mutually referred the relation one to another. For I remember that I have memory and understanding and will. And I understand that I understand and will and remember. And I will that I will and remember and understand. And I remember together my whole memory and understanding and will. 
Okay, for time's sake, let's go on to the third one. There is this third analogy that builds upon, hopefully we'll even flesh out a little bit, the second analogy that we just covered, in which Augustine locates here, Augustine locates the perfection, the perfection of the image of God in man. It is still to be found here in this third analogy. It is still to be found in the imminent operations, the activity of memory, intellect, and will. But now Augustine locates the perfection of this image in the memory, knowledge, and love, not in the memory, knowledge, and love of self, but now in its remembering, knowing, and loving God. For man is most like God when, is most like God himself when God himself is the chief object of the soul, and all else is ordered in relation to its knowledge and love of God. John, John Sullivan, again, in his book on the image, expresses the pro- progression of Augustine's thought like this. Man is like God naturally in knowing and loving himself, and this form of the image is never fully lost after the fall, but he becomes more like God only by knowing and loving God and self as the image of God, and this being the renewal and perfection of the image is only ever recovered by the gospel. In other words, the image of God is most greatly seen and his likeness is most realized and perfected in the soul when it manifests in relation to him by whom, by, by whom it was that had been impressed upon, upon the soul. We are most like God when we, like God, know God and love God and all things in relation to God. Only then will, be, will, we, will we fully even know ourselves. The, 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 the reason and the end for which we exist. Here we see Calvin's emphasis, I think, um, in the, even though he, he, he takes some issue with Augustine on, on some of his speculation here in relation to the image of God, we nevertheless see um, an emphasis in Calvin that comes from Augustine in the opening chapter of his Institutes where, where the true knowledge of self... Right? The true knowledge of self, or a full knowledge of self, we should say, and a full knowledge of God are intertwined. He gets that here from, from Augustine. Augustine writes, But if the soul does not know and love God, even when it remembers and understands and loves itself, then it is foolish. Let it then remember its God after whose image it is made, and let it understand and love him. Again, he writes, He who knows how to love himself loves God. If man does not know himself as an image and in relation to God, then he has in some sense forgotten himself and does not truly know himself, much less love himself. This full realization and, and the manifestation of the image and the likeness of God presupposes, well, it presupposes, the, um, it presupposes the theological virtues, the presence of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, wherein the soul is especially ordered, we say reordered to God through, through knowledge and love, through intellect and will. Likewise, and I'll just throw this out here, but it presupposes the internal missions of God as well, wherein the Son indwells the believer through faith and the Spirit through love, reforming the image according to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. This is man's all. Augustine says at the end of his De Trinitate, to the remembering, seeing, loving of that supreme trinity, that he may recall it, contemplate it, and delight in it, the whole of his life, the whole of our life, ought to be referred. 
leaving aside a couple um, critiques that can be made of such analogies, uh, one of them is, in fact, offered by Augustine himself, and um, the other one in the history of interpretation is offered by Aquinas. Leaving that aside, let it suffice to say that the Son of God is the only exact, right, the only express image of God eternally proceeding from the Father. And so all of these uh, do, um, along the way, uh, fall short. And Augustine himself recognizes that. The tradition has always recognized that. These, however, do manifest the triune nature of God in their own limited and finite ways. So briefly, then, just as a matter of conclusion, how was Augustine appropriated within the Reformed tradition on this doctrine? The truth is that our tradition does not leave us with a unanimous voice as it regards the image, which is, I think, Dr. Renahan can correct me, um, and if I'm wrong, he should correct me, but I think that that's why the confession limits itself to the explicit words of Scripture in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, because all throughout the tradition have, have agreed upon that much. Calvin, for instance, in his commentary, he dismisses Augustine's treatise as mere speculation, while at the same time ambiguously affirming that there is probably something true to it. In fact, in, in, a, sermon, in a sermon, he even says this, Those are subtleties which we must not reject out of hand. And in fact, it is true that reason exists primarily in the soul, and then there is memory and will. But then this is as far as he goes and does not develop it. Most, I would say most, leave the doctrine undeveloped. And at least in my, in my little bit of reading, um, do little more than, do more, but little more than quote Colossians 3.10, which makes reference to our being renewed in knowledge, and Ephesians 4.24, which mentions the, the image being renewed in true righteousness and holiness. Um, some, there's few that I've come across that uh, seem to even reduce the image to man's dominion over creation, but that doesn't seem to be, um, by any stretch, the majority. Turton, Francis Turton, however, speaks of the intellect and will and the liberty arising from both, which is like Augustine, but it actually has something more of an Eastern emphasis, um, but, and even then still does little to develop it. Wilhelmus Abrockel makes mention of the intellect, will, and affections, which has no exact um, parallel with, with Augustine. Close, but no exact. There are others, however, that are clearly understanding and appropriating Augustine's reflections. Remigli, in his Commonplaces, he writes, how much we be the image of God, it appears by our felicity. So he's turning to um, man's beatitude and, and which way the, the, the image of God is perfected. So it appears by our felicity, which we have one and the same with our God. I mean in loving and knowing. Um, Muller writes that, and I'm going to butcher this, um, Pierre Verre, um, but he's an early Swiss reformer. Muller says that he developed patristic metaphors at some length with a particular affection for Augustine's language of understanding, memory, and will, and for the medieval language of emanations of intellect and will. Edward Lee, in his System of Divinity, writes... The soul of man is conformable to God in respect of its faculties. In its understanding, will, and memory, it is like the Trinity. So, two very brief observations and then a recommendation, and then I'll stop. 
First, observation. Augustine's reflections are not so much rejected, maybe, maybe Calvin, but not even quite. Augustine's reflections are not so much rejected as the doctrine of the image itself is, seems to be undeveloped, maybe uh, at any rate, just not elaborated upon is what I'm trying to say, in most Reformed treatments, at, at, at least not elaborated upon at great length. Reference is sometimes merely made to the scriptures, mention of of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. But as Edward Lee even seems to point out, these, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and Colossians and Ephesians, these refer not to the image itself, but to its renewal and perfection and rectitude. The knowledge rectifying the intellect and holiness the will. That man might truly exercise his dominion in accordance with knowledge, the knowledge and love of God, no less. Second observation. Augustine's influence is more greatly seen as it regards the Reformed doctrine of the Trinity. Here, anyways, the influence on this doctrine. Moeller notes that the language of the divine as the language of the divine as mind considering itself as object and of the divine love as generating and contemplating its own image became fairly common among the later reformed but i'll say this 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 way of speaking about the trinity is rooted and grounded upon augustine's trinitarian anthropological reflections upon the image of God. In other words, his doctrine of the image irrefutably lies in the background of his broader influence upon our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. So the influence is there. It's there, it's just not always acknowledged. Um, Here's a recommendation. Among Reformed sources, I would recommend reading von Maastricht on this doctrine, who, who treats the matter more thoroughly than, well, than any that I had, had come across that I had opportunity to read. And in my opinion, he's clearly influenced. He's not enslaved to, but he is clearly influenced by Augustine. And he is, uh, at least as, as Augustine, is filtered through Aquinas. Even so, when all is said and done, I would say that there is no substitute for reading Augustine's De Trinitate itself.